Welcome. Welcome to RUF. Woo, that's loud, yo. Really? Taking us down a notch. Don't mind me. Is that better? Welcome to RUF. <laughs> I'm going to blow your eardrums, though. Um, there we go. That's awkward. Uh, <laughs> Welcome to RUF. My name is Simon Stokes. If I haven't met you, I would love to meet you at some point. Um, Special welcome to everyone here who's new for the first time, and I, I really want to extend a welcome to our Duke friends over here. The gospel, woo, the gospel really does break down barriers, even with ACC basketball teams, so that's great. Um, so Katie and I, this last week, um, we partook of the greatness that is Halloween on Franklin Street. If you didn't see us out there, it's cool. Um, I mean, a lot of people spend a lot of time and money and like effort on Halloween costumes out there, and we weren't any different. We went as uh, very vanilla white people walking around. I had a red gingham shirt on, uh, some, some uh, jeans, and just loving Downton Abbey and Star Trek and the idea of urban farming. So <laughs> that's what we were doing. Uh, but it was really awesome. It was a sight to see. And, we loved it. Uh, we did actually see some of y'all out there. It was really, really great. Um, so we had a great time. Um, so I th- one of the things I was thinking about this week was kind of along the lines of Halloween was, uh, as I prepared this sermon tonight, um, was that there is a story that I read a few years ago from the historian Plutarch. He's an ancient historian. And he talks about how Julius Caesar, like an amazing historical figure, ran one time into some pirates. And he te- this is really happening. He tells us that once when Julius Caesar is, this, is a young man, he goes out on a diplomatic mission to go see a Greek ruler. And so he's in Italy, he goes over to Greece, sails along, on his way back, uh, he gets captured by pirates, which is an odd thing. They don't have like a hook on the hand or like a parrot on the shoulder, but they're out there. And uh, they capture him, they want to ransom him for basically like $20 million dollars. Uh, and Julius is actually insulted by that. He says, you know what, I'm a bigger man than that, I'm a greater man than that. $20 million, too low for me. Make it $50 million. Um, or the equivalent of $50 million 2,000 years ago. Uh, and they, the pirates think, well, okay, like, don't want to lowball anybody, so $50 million it is. And uh, so they make it $50 million, and they're kind of waiting around for the ransom money to kind of come in. And Julius is writing poetry. He's exercising, like running on the beach. Um, and he, this is really out. <laughs> it's kind of weird to think about. Um, and he's also kind of making these kind of flippant jokes with the pirates. Like, if you don't let me go, I'm going to come back here and get you guys. And the pirates are kind of hanging out with Julius. And they're like, ah, he's just kidding He's just a kidder. Uh, we hear this thing all the time. We're pirates. We're ransoming people every day. Um, he's, just, he's just saying stuff. Julius Caesar gets ransomed, and he comes back uh, with a fleet of ship and ships, and he kills all the pirates, like, two weeks later. Uh, <laughs> don't mess with Julius Caesar in that story. I tell that story because of this. <laughs> I know, it's a random story. Uh, <laughs> what do great men do with their power? What do great men do to those who are underneath them? What do great men do to their enemies? That's one of the things I want to talk about tonight. Um, in God's kingdom, to be great means humility. It means sacrificial love. And so, at times it means suffering. In God's kingdom, it doesn't get any greater than a humble Savior who sacrifices himself for other people. 
And true greatness, his greatness, leads to change people who do the same thing. And the context of the passage we're about to read tonight is this. It's a story about James and John, two of Jesus' disciples. And they come to Jesus kind of on the sly. And they want him to promise them that when he comes in his power, that he will make them great men. And we see that, kind of reading the story, that James and John haven't really figured out what Jesus is about. Um, He's told them over and over again, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to die on a cross. And they're thinking, okay, this guy is about to get really rich. And he's about to get really powerful. Um, And they're seeing, Jesus is a dude who has raised people from the dead. He's a guy who has walked on water. And they're probably thinking to themselves something like, Nobody who can make blind men see is going to be a poor, like, peasant preacher for the rest of his life. Like, this dude is going places, and they want a piece of that pie. So they cozy up to him, and they say, Jesus, I know you're going to be a powerful man one day. Promise me that when you're powerful, we'll be powerful with you. And they look kind of at the other disciples and say, and we want to be more powerful than them. And Jesus sees that what James and John want is kind of this greatness that rules over other people. Something that kind of pulls people into its orbit and sets them beneath it. But Jesus shows them the way to greatness lived out in God's kingdom is the way of the cross. And we say along with James and John, power. And Jesus says humility. And we say ambition, but Jesus shows us service. And we scramble for comfort, but Jesus takes suffering on his back. And he calls us to the same at times. To serve Jesus is to give up that part of you that says, I will do things my way because I know what's best. It's to give up that desire to be great on your own terms. And Christ doesn't try to get rid of that desire. What he does is he wants us to be great, but if we're going to do do great things and be great for him and great in his kingdom, then we have to do so on his terms. The trouble is this, that we all want to be great on our own terms. But God shows us that true greatness is through the cross of Christ. For a Christian, there is no other way to greatness than through that cross. The way to greatness for us is to put our hands on a first century instrument of torture, something that's supposed to strike fear into our hearts, and to say something like, I need this. This is how I'm going to become great. It's not going to be by me getting hotter, or wealthier, or smarter, or more disciplined. I'm going to be great because I'm going to give up expectations of what I think my life ought to look like or what it could look like. And I want to be shaped instead by the humility and the sacrificial love of the God of the cross. So tonight we're going to look at three points. What are our terms for greatness? What are Christ's terms for greatness? And how do we embrace his greatness? Our terms, Christ's terms, and how do we embrace his greatness? So let's read Mark 10, 42 through 45. And Jesus called them as disciples to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever will be great among you must be your servant, and whoever will be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Father, um, we need your help especially with passages like this. God, how often do we come to you and say we want things on our own terms, we want things in our way, and we won't have it any other way? God, unless you give us a new heart, we we can't come to you any other way. 
Lord, I pray that you would give us that tonight. I pray that you'd move us towards your son to see his beauty, to see his excellence. Lord, to follow him. Lord, to allow him to wash us with his blood. That we would be made new, we'd be cleansed. God, that we would follow after you, our Savior and our Lord. And your sister, we pray. Amen. What was that? <laughs> Hello? <laughs> um, <laughs> so, I, I'm a child of the 80s and 90s. Uh, I grew up listening to a lot of grunge rock and um, a little bit of kind of bluegrass and country and things like that. And if you listen to like the Avid Brothers or Mumford & Sons, uh, then you've got to like be aware that they were really influenced by a guy named, a guy named Bob Dylan. Uh, who stripped down uh, guitar for the most part to an electric and uh, really, really powerful lyrics. And a lot of people don't know this, but he kind of went through, um, he, kind of, he, became convert, he got converted to Christianity and he kind of had kind of a period in his music where he talked a lot about that. And he had a few decades ago an album called Blood on the Tracks. And on that he had a song that actually won a Grammy. It's called You Gotta Serve Somebody. And Dylan points out in this, he says, you know, like, you may be the king, you may be a president, you may be a pauper, but you're going to serve somebody. Hook <laughs> 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 me up, Wilson. <laughs> Thanks, man. There you go. It's stuck. It's totally Can you hear me? Is that growling? Yes. Yeah, cool. <laughs> Welcome to REF, everyone. <laughs> Um, so Dylan talks about how whoever you are, wherever you are in life, you're going to serve somebody. And it might be um, power, it might be money, it might be sex, but whoever we are, wherever we are in life, we are going to serve something. And here in the Gospels, we're pointed to if we're going to serve Jesus, then we have to take our power to take our sexuality, we have to take our money, we have to use it for his ends and his ways. You know, on our terms, power is one of the most captivating things around, isn't it? Few things are more alluring than the thrill of being in charge. The problem with power is that you never know how much you have. Like, you can't count it. It's not like money you can't store it away or put it in a vault somewhere. It's always changing. And however much you have, it's never enough. To be enticed by power is to pursue power for its own sake. You start to cut corners to get more power. You become a different person around people so that you can put other folks down below you. Many people who start off with good intentions will leave their original virtues behind when they're given power or the promise of power, aren't they? And I think that when we talk about power, it can often kind of blow away most of our kind of experiences. We kind of think of images of kind of generals in gray uniforms in like a bunker somewhere. They're kind of pushing plastic tanks across a map of Europe. Or like a Lifetime movie kind of pops in our head, she gave up everything to become a mob boss. Like, cra- like crazy things like that, where people just totally sell out for power. Things that are way past most of our experiences. But if you think about it, all of us have power on some capacity. That you make your schedule for the most part. And you decide who you'll spend your time with. And for the most part, you decide where you'll go and what you're going to do. You know why you feel so much anxiety at times or so much worry? Because you have this image locked up somewhere inside of you that just assumes, I know the way that my life is supposed to go. 
And you dot your I's and you cross your T's and you crave the power to attain that image that's inside of you of that kind of happy you somewhere down the road. If I just got out of college and started making 70, 80K a year, then I'd be free. If I could just start dating the right person, then I'd finally be happy. You know, if I just moved to Colorado or California or went backpacking through Europe for a few years with some friends, then my life would be the way that I want it to be. I would be the person that I want to be. And we take our power and we try to build that imagined life minute by minute, conversation by conversation. And it might not materialize today or tomorrow, but we tell ourselves someday, at some point, that's going to get here. And the heart of that fantasy is not just a desire for safety or comfort, but a desire to be better, better than the people around us. If I get out, I need to make more money than my frat brother, or maybe even my real brother. Ask yourself this, will you finally have that sense of belonging and worth and safety that you've longed for when you can finally juggle more things in your schedule than other people? Probably not, but how often do we tell ourselves that we will? When Jesus says the rulers, the Gentiles, lord it over them, that's exactly what he means. That they aren't just lords, but they lord their power over those beneath them. They don't let other people forget who's in charge, or who's the best, or who's working the hardest, or doing the most homework, or taking on the most extracurriculars. Their power is for them and not anybody else. And just by nature of who we are, that's really all of us. Power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And we hear that aphorism and we kind of nod our heads because we know in some ways that's kind of all of us on a deep heart level. So if that's our terms for greatness, what are Christ's terms? Let's start by connecting the terms that he uses for himself here. Son of man, ransom. When Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, he's making a really specific reference to the Old Testament book of Daniel in chapter 7. We talked a little bit about this. But there Daniel tells us that he has this vision of these four horrible beasts that come out of the ocean They rise up to destroy God's people. But then Daniel looks, he sees God on his throne in glory with thousands of people around him. And he judges the world. He destroys the beast. And then Daniel tells us, one like a son of man comes with the clouds of heaven. And he's given eternal power and glory and a kingdom. And Jesus is saying here, okay, you see that guy? That guy that Daniel's talking about? That glorious son of man that destroys the enemies of God's people? And rules the world. Well that's me. And I may not look like it right now. But that's me. And he's saying that he shares in God's glory and rule. But the thing about Jesus is this. Is that he doesn't treat his lordship as though it were for himself. He rules for others. It's for his friends. And it's for his enemies. When he's dying on the cross. What are his last words? Father forgive them. Forgive them. These men who are spitting on me and laughing at me, and throwing rocks at me, and who have nailed me to this piece of wood. Forgive them, because they know you not. He's a king, but he bleeds mercy. He's Lord, but he oozes humility and kindness. And in himself, he is glorious. Yet none of that glory is spent on himself. It's all for other people. That takes us to ransom. What does he mean by ransom? Proverbs 13.8 says, that the ransom of a man's life is his wealth, but a poor man hears no threat. A ransom was always paid for important people, for people like Julius Caesar. And the higher the ransom, the more important a person. Like Someone like you or I are probably not going to get a very high ransom. We're not, we're not $50 million caliber people. Um, 
a poor person isn't here much of a threat, and that's certainly us. Uh, but a king or a queen had better watch their backs. Like Julius Caesar better watch his back. And the biblical understanding of people is that we are made in God's image, and so we are precious. That God looks at us as though we're captive queens and captive kings, people who are worth a lot. And what we're captive to is our desire for power over other people, to our greed, to our lust, to the power that sin has in our lives. Think about this. If you can't give up your power, then you're really not in control of your power. It's your power that's in control of you. If you can't give up your money, then you're not in control of your money. It's your money that's in control of you. And Jesus is saying that he's come to ransom us from that power, to set us free. That we are captive to evil and God gave himself as our ransom so that we would be set free. And this is so counterintuitive to our thinking. Yet Jesus, who is the greatest person ever, has made himself poor and homeless so he can pay out his life as a ransom to people who are in his debt. People who are arrogant and callous. In God's kingdom, whoever wants to be great has to be their servant. Whoever wants to be first has to be the slave of all. For the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What he does with his power flips our whole understanding of power on its head. Because here's the thing, that Jesus is greater than Caesar. He's the Son of Man, and what he's telling us here is that when he gets the pirates, and when he gets the rebellious kings and queens, instead of crucifying them, he gives his life as a ransom to set them free. And he's crucified in their place. He pays out the debts that we owe. And he says, if you want to be great, then live a life of humble service. Give your life to those around you, just like I gave my life to you. How will you know how well you're doing that? You will know that you're a servant when people don't ask you to serve. You'll know you're a servant when they just assume that you'll serve. You know, if you have to ask somebody to do something, it's because that's not what they would normally do. But for someone who is a servant, service is expected. It's just who they are. And it's that service that makes them great. Not your organizational ability, not your intelligence, not even how busy you are in serving, but it's your heart for service that God tells us that makes us great. And I'm not trying to add here another burden to the things that you already do, but service has always been a part of being a Christian. And Christians at UNC should be leading the way in service. We should be serving the poor. We should be tutoring English as a second language. We should be loving the crap out of our neighbors. Ideally, if RUF closed its doors tomorrow, Chapel Hill would weep because of what it had lost, because of our service to it. And here's the thing. All of us are given power of some sort or another. One day, all of us are going to be somebody's boss or someone's mom or someone's dad or their wife or their husband. You will have power. In somebody's life. And the question is, what will you do with that power? Will you use it to serve or will you use it to dominate people? You know, one of the most important questions that you should ask when looking for a spouse is, are they a servant? Is this someone that loves people sacrificially? As someone who married that kind of person, it's pretty good. I'll tell you that. <laughs> it's awesome. Um, so go out and look for a servant to marry. Go out and be a servant to bless your future marriage and to bless your kids one day.
You know, when you head up a project in class, do you put your hand on the shoulders of the people beneath you and crush them so that you can get higher? Or are you going to stoop underneath them and rise up so they can get higher? You know, in God's kingdom, one of those things is truly great, and the other is not. Real greatness is defined by a heart that serves like Christ because it's shaped by his life of service. But how do we get that servant heart? This is the final point. How do we get that heart? First of all, do we really need Christianity to be moral or to serve people? I would say yes. Um, I think there's three basic approaches to service that we could look at here. The first approach is kind of a resume builder. That our service is really, it's kind of given to other people, but really at the end of the day it's given for ourselves. To show people how nice we are, to build a resume, to kind of pat ourselves on the back. Maybe to help us ignore the pain, the kind of secret knowledge of our faults, or to make up for the things that we've left undone, or the things that we have done. Service can be a thing uh, for very religious people. The people who are strictly religious or very spiritual will serve in order to win God over to their side or kind of appease karma or whatever, a way to deal with their guilt. But the third way to service is through the gospel. The gospel says that when you see that you're so sinful that God himself would have to die for you to set you free, then what has seemed great about your life is really revealed to be pretty small. It gives you a perspective of humility. However, when you see that God considers you so precious, so beloved, that he would freely die for you on a cross, then you can lift up your head. And you can go out and you can follow him. Because his love humbles us and it frees us from the need for power. We don't have to have power over other people to be accepted or to be in. Yet it also shows us how to use that power. And it motivates us to use it in a loving way. Like God has used his power for us. You know, in 15 years, people who serve out of desire to build a resume don't really have a resume anymore. They don't really have to be affirmed by the powers to be at UNC anymore. They probably won't be serving anymore because they would have got what they wanted out of service. But my hope for y'all is that one day you're going to have a mortgage and you're going to have a job that stresses you out and you're going to have kids that keep you from playing golf. And you're going to have a marriage where sometimes you feel really connected to your spouse and sometimes you don't feel very connected to your spouse. But then in the midst of all of that, you would go out and you would serve people who are homeless, people who are addicted, people who don't deserve your service. And you would know that this is not another thing for me to do. This is what it means for me to be redeemed in the image of God. This is what it means for me to be freed by God to be myself is to serve, to give to other people. I'll end with this. Um, One of my favorite movies ever is Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. If you haven't, I'm again a child of the mid-80s and early 90s. (laughs) If you haven't seen it, uh, Harrison Ford um, played Han Solo in Star Wars. He's an archaeologist in this movie instead of a space smuggler. Uh, (laughs) He's running around in Europe in the 1930s. He's beating up Nazis. Uh, instead of Chewbacca as a sidekick, he has Sean Connery, which is pretty cool. Uh, James Bond is your dad. That's, that's going to make you pretty awesome. Uh, so let me spell that for you. They kill a lot of Nazis in this movie. Uh, and they're on this crusade. They're searching for the Holy Grail, which is this mythical kind of cup that caught Jesus' blood at the crucifixion. And according to the movie, if you drank from the, the cup, then you'd become immortal. 
Um, and the Nazis want to drink from it, create a super army and take over the world. Indiana Jones and Sean Connery don't really want that to happen, so they're fighting the Nazis. Uh, <laughs> I've just boiled out the entire movie for you. At the end of the last crusade, though, Indiana Jones has recovered the grail, he's saved the day, but it comes with a price. To remain immortal, you can't leave the temple where the grail is kept. And you definitely can't take the grail outside of the temple, otherwise there's like earthquakes and the ground splits open, and like you fall into a big hole in the ground. Uh, <laughs> obviously, the Nazis, being who they are, they don't care about this, and so they steal the grail from Indiana Jones, and they try to take it out of the temple. Big mistake, right? Like the ground opens up, um, people are falling into this big crack, and uh, as the ground splits in two, Indiana Jones' girlfriend, a lady named Elsa, who actually happens to be a Nazi too, which is a little bit of a gray area here. <laughs> <laughs> That's, I find that problematic. Uh, <laughs> just a caveat. Um, she falls into the pit, or she falls onto the side of the, this kind of crack in the earth that's opened up, and she's hanging on, and Indian Jones has her by the hand, and right to her right, she sees the grail. It's just out of reach, and she's saying, I've got it. I've got it. I can grab this thing. Indian, I can do this. And she's thinking about all the power that would come with that grail. And the glory that comes with it. And she's thinking about the accolades that people would give her. And her eyes are just lit up with the desire for the grail. And she wants it so bad. And Nina Jones is holding under her hand and saying, Elsa, like, let go of the cup. Let go of the grail. Let go of this power and hold on to me. I can't, I can't hold on to you. And she's saying, just a little bit further. I can reach it. I can get it. Just a little bit further. And he's saying, you're slipping. I can't, I can't get you. You're slipping. And there's another earthquake, and she slips out of his hand, and she falls into the pit. And this time, though, in the earthquake, Indiana Jones falls into the pit. Uh, and he's hanging on for dear life. And it's his turn to be tempted. It's his turn to be tested by the grail. And Sean Connery, James Bond, has <laughs> will always be James Bond, has a hold of his, his wrist, and he's looking down, and he's saying... Junior, give me your hand. <laughs> a terrible Scottish accent. <laughs> I feel you with that. He said, give me your hand. And Indiana Jones is hanging off for dear life. And he's, he's saying, I've almost got it. I can almost get it. I can almost get the power. I can almost get the glory. I can be on the inside for once. I can have people look at me and clap as I walk by. I can have people give me accolades because look at how great I am. Look how powerful I am because I found the grail cup. And his dad is saying, he's like, Junior, you're going to slip out of my hand. I'm going to lose you. And then in this great moment in the movie, Sean Connery looks at him and his kind of rough, gravelly, Scottish accent goes from being really gruff and very soft and tender. And he says, he says, Indiana, give me your hand. And that kind of breaks the power of the grail. And Jones grabs his hand and he's pulled up and he's saved. And for many of us, what we need is we reach after power and ambition and glory and the desire just to be in. Just to be in for once in your life. Which I know that for a lot of us is something we struggle with. Even here in RUF, we struggle with that. Will I ever be in? And sometimes power can make it seem like you're in. But if you're going to give up that power and you're going to use it to serve, 
What you need is to know that God has reached down and He has said your name. And He has called you to Himself. And for your sake, His Son has fallen into the pit. So that you could be raised up. So that you could be made new. So that you could become clean and whole. And so that you could be on the, the truly on the inside. Partaking in the life of God. Through service and through the sacrificial love of His Son. And if you're here tonight and you're thinking, I don't know if I can break that kind of power. I don't know if I can give those things up to just serve people. I don't know if I'll ever feel like I'm on the inside. Pray to the God who calls us to himself. Pray to the God who became helpless so he could help those of us who are helpless. He hears your prayers. And he is good to answer them. And he loves to answer the prayers of people who need him. That is what... He's in the business of doing. So if that's you tonight, I pray that you pray that. Let's pray. Father, you know our needs. You know the work that you do in our hearts. God, you move in our hearts to bring us to yourself. And Lord, I pray that you'd move tonight to help us give up our power so that we could serve. Lord, to help us give up our power so that we could walk according to the life that you called us to live. Lord, not um, out of duty or obligation or as another thing to do, but because we're free people. Because we're more loved than we could ever imagine, even though we're more sinful than we could ever, ever imagine either. And Lord, I pray that you'd work in our hearts and our lives. I pray that you'd set us free from power to set us free to love. In your sins, let me pray. Amen.